Listener Production. So what do you do when a piece of Elon Musk's space junk lands on your property? I just found it out in the um, out in the paddock. Went over to check some sheep and it was just there in the middle of the paddock. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting... Didn't know where it came from or... Yeah, it wasn't there. I was in that paddock probably a couple of weeks before and it definitely wasn't there because it was on the track, so I would have saw it. Just a bizarre story. That's a Snowy Mountain sheep farmer called Jock Wallace... And he had no idea who to call when that three-metre chunk of debris from the SpaceX Dragon capsule landed on his sheep farm last month. So in this briefing, how this junk landed in the snow mountains in Australia and how it led SpaceX, Elon Musk's space company, to set up a hotline. Two sheep farmers can create change in a $125 billion organisation. That's our briefing in just a moment. First, today's headlines. It is Wednesday, the 10th of August, and I'm joined by Rihanna Patrick. Serena Williams will retire from tennis after the US Open in three weeks. She's posted a photo to Instagram of herself on the cover of Vogue titled Serena's Farewell, I'm Terrible at Goodbyes. Yeah, so the 23-time Grand Slam winner said there comes a time in life where we have to decide to move in a different direction. I'm turning 41 this month and something's got to give. So she's talked about wanting to have a a second child and that she doesn't want to go through another pregnancy whilst being a top-level athlete. Yeah, and it means that the US Open will be her last chance at equaling the singles Grand Slam all-time record, which is still held by Margaret Court. Yeah, this is a huge announcement in tennis and, and world sport. She's one of the greatest athletes of all time, and it's been an incredible journey, um, pushing all the way to the age of 40 at the top level. And um, yeah, she played the Australian Open and she won it when she was two months pregnant. And I recently watched the film um, with Will Smith playing her father and just what an incredible story, you know, the story of that family. Yeah, I'll definitely be tuning in to see that goat go out in style, I think. And a political firestorm has broken out in the US after the FBI searched former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida. Prominent Republicans are accusing the Democrats of weaponizing federal law enforcement. Yeah, so this search on Trump's home was related to the potential mishandling of classified documents. Trump released a statement saying, My beautiful home Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida is currently under siege, raided and occupied by a large group of FBI agents. They even broke into my safe. Yeah, and earlier this year, 15 boxes of White House records that Trump had brought to Mar-a-Lago were retrieved, and among those documents were letters from North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un and former President Barack Obama. So he could face jail time and be barred from public office if he has concealed or tampered with government documents. And this comes as the Justice Department ramps up its investigations into Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. And also comes at a time where Trump is considering um, whether he'll run for president again in 2024. Olivia Newton-John, the star of Greece, will have a state funeral in Victoria. We will, on behalf of not just our family, but I think Australia needs it. She's so loved. And I think our country needs it, so we're going to accept it. So that was Olivia Newton-John's niece, Toddy Goldsmith, on Nine. So Melbourne lit up pink overnight to remember the 73-year-old's contribution, not just to entertainment, but also cancer research. She passed away peacefully at her ranch in Southern California, surrounded by family and friends. 
And the tributes are just incredible, aren't they, Rihanna? All the people um, just talking about what an amazing person she was. Yeah, and it's, I guess, you know, everyone remembering what it was about Olivia Newton-John that they loved and why she was, I guess, so popular as well. I definitely was a big Xanadu fan. <laughs> yeah, well, when I spoke to my partner Amanda about it yesterday, she goes, oh, I used to serve her at the local Thai restaurant in Alstonville up on the Northern Rivers. And it sort of brought home to me that she was able to traverse these two worlds of being a huge global superstar, but also still have this authentic girl next door kind of vibe. And also, um, I guess it reminded me of the work that she did in the wellness industry. Um, But it was that duality of being so relatable, but such a huge star that I think made people just love her in a huge, uh, deep way. And I guess it's why so many people are moved by her passing. The Reserve Bank is trialling its own digital currency, but unlike Bitcoin and Ether, which are decentralised, this one would be issued and controlled by the central bank, just like cash. And it's got a very exciting name, CBDC, (laughs) which stands for Central Bank Digital Currency. Not quite as fun as um, Dogecoin. Yeah, and it's part of a research project expected to last a year, looking at the potential benefits and drawbacks of a central bank digital currency. And the RBA's Deputy Governor, Michelle Bollock, has called it an important step, but says she still thinks a future Australian central bank digital currency is unlikely, but they are exploring it. Um, About 100 countries are considering rolling out similar currencies, and some countries like China and the Bahamas are already distributing digital currencies among the public. Um, People say it would mean faster and cheaper transactions and promote financial inclusion, plus give central banks more flexibility in monetary policy. I guess proponents of cryptocurrencies would argue that, um, you know, the fact they're decentralised and not controlled by central banks or governments is the best thing about them. So it remains to be seen how much value a central bank-controlled digital currency would really have. Yeah, I guess that's when you know that the party's over. <laughs> when the central bank's hanging out It's like out turning on the dance up floor. and everyone is, that's right, they're the only ones on the dance floor and everybody else has started to go home because it's 4am. <laughs> I've been that person so many times. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, Rihanna, we'll catch you tomorrow. Uh, we're about to head with Katrina to the Snow Mountains where Elon's space junk has been landing on sheep farms. Hey, Katrina Blau is here. So imagine you're a sheep farmer on your beautiful, peaceful property near Jindabyne in the New South Wales Snowy Mountains. You're just minding your own business on another Saturday. And all of a sudden, boom. Well, I had a bit of a look around and I sort of, yeah, it made me sort of wonder a bit what was going on. And it's a bit of a way when things just start falling out of the sky. It's fair size and it's sort of wedged in the ground pretty well, so... It must have felt pretty hard, I'd say. That's farmer Mick Miners who said when he first went to see what had caused that big bang on his property on July 9, he saw an object he thought looked like a tree. Just up the road, his farmer mate Jock Wallace had a similar thing happen. And Tom, they did not know what to do. Well, it's pretty bizarre, isn't it? I mean, what, what would you do? Apparently they suspected it might be Elon Musk's space junk and eventually... They were right. Last week, a spokesperson from Musk's company SpaceX confirmed that, yes, 
The junk belonged to them and the debris was from the SpaceX Dragon capsule that broke up upon re-entry. So to explain how this happened and what to do if this happens to you, we're joined by astrophysicist Dr Brad Tucker from the Australian National University in Canberra. Brad, thanks for joining us. You were actually one of the first experts these farmers managed to get hold of. So in fact, believe it or not, they tried to contact SpaceX. They couldn't find a number. They did try to contact the space agency. No one answered. So they tried to uh, call around and, and no one really wanted to answer. Uh, and this was, again, part of the problem. It, there wasn't any clear policy. There wasn't any clear person responsible for it. So eventually, a radio station I chat on in, in Bega, which covers the Snowy Mountains, Jock's mother-in-law is a regular listener. And she's like, hey, why don't you call the radio station to see if they can get onto that space guy, Brad, to have Whoa. a look. They got onto me and I took a look and away we went. And then eventually, because of the story and the efforts of Mick and Jock, SpaceX set up their hotline for this. So that hotline didn't exist uh, until this event. Right. So, you know, two sheep farmers can create change in a $125 billion organization. Okay, so Brad, was it a big surprise to you that something like this could happen in this part of the world? Look, it, it was a bit in the sense that you never really expect to find space junk on the ground. It is a, a fairly rare occurrence. So that's a good thing. It wasn't surprising in the sense that because a few weeks earlier on the 9th of July, lots of people had reported and heard sightings, hearings, sonic booms of this trunk, this part of this SpaceX capsule re-entering and breaking apart over New South Wales. So when these farmers said, hey, we think we have some space junk, you know, lots of people think they do. And it's usually easy to, to rule out. In this case, I'm like, oh, well, you know, you're, you're pretty close to where it broke apart. And then when I first saw the pictures, I was like, whoa, that's, a, that's not your ordinary junk here in terms of that's falling to the ground. Yeah. When you say it doesn't normally happen, what, what normally happens? Does it normally break up before it hits to Earth? And, and what actually made it to the ground? What did it look like? So, so it does break up, uh, and this did break up as well. Uh, you know, this trunk was four or so meters tall, 10 or so meters in circumference. So it was a big piece hitting the Earth's atmosphere. So the idea is that as it slams in the Earth's atmosphere, it breaks apart. Hopefully some of it burns up. So usually the plan is that it's aimed so that it breaks up over the ocean. So knowing that big pieces can survive uh, so that if they land in the ocean, then obviously there, there's no risk to, to injury or harm. In this case, that obviously didn't happen. It, and, you know, people think, well, how'd you miss the ocean? Well, when you're, when you're traveling 25,000 kilometers an hour, if you're off by a few minutes, mm. you know, that, that's a difference of hundreds mm. of thousands of kilometers, depending on that exact speed and time. So New South Wales, Snowy Mountains to the coast isn't as dramatic as it may seem, and bits may have actually landed in the ocean. But I think also what was surprising was just how large the fragments were. The, the largest fragment was about three meters tall or so, we didn't pick it up, but we kind of estimate based on how it was moving and such, about 30 kilos. Uh, the smaller fragment that was found was about an 80 centimeter square, about 15 kilograms. So, you know, these were not small pieces that made it to the ground. And that was kind of the surprising bit and one that obviously shocked the farmers as well as lots of other people. Yeah, so in this case, you know, thankfully it landed in remote farmland, but in other parts of the Snowy Mountains, it could have landed on a town, on a bushwalker or a skier. And if that had happened, they'd be dead, right? 
you wouldn't be great. Um, <laughs> Come on, so you, 25,000 right. Ks an hour. <laughs> well, so, so firstly, you know, it, it does lose a lot of energy when it breaks up. So it doesn't fall at 25,000 kilometers okay. an hour to the ground. So it loses most of the energy. But it's still a 30-kilogram piece in free fall from 80 kilometers up. It's not going to be great. No one has ever been killed by space junk. That's a, a great thing. Um, I wouldn't lose any sleep over this worry of space junk, but it's really this call to, to arms, so to speak, of the problem that as we launch more and more things up, the likelihood of these things happening more and more uh, is a real risk and a, and a real worry all at the same time. So we have to find better ways of limiting space junk, getting rid of space junk, and proper control, so to speak, of space junk. What really surprised me was when I read the comments made by the spokesperson from SpaceX when they gave that media conference and they said that they'd done some projections and this space junk that fell on that sheep farm was in the expected path of where things might come down and this particular debris was within that analysed space. So if they knew that there was a likelihood of space junk landing around that area, why didn't they notify people? And this is an interesting point that they brought up is, yes, it was in the flight path. Yes, we knew it. And there was that small likelihood. Now, they couldn't confirm that was exactly what was going to happen, but he said it was in their, their models, essentially. Uh, and this kind of then raises the, the point that in order for SpaceX to get approval, obviously, it was a NASA-funded mission because NASA astronauts went on it. NASA wouldn't have been involved. More importantly, the FAA, who approves flights in the U.S., both Earth and, and space, had to say, all right, this is the acceptable risk, so to speak, and the acceptable margins. Is that really acceptable for Australia? You know, the, Australia was not consulted as part of this, it's very clear, but they're not required to either. And so it really raised the point that how do you accept and communicate risk in space? And I think this is a big point that we're, this discussion is now being raise them around the community because they may say it's fine and it may end up being fine, but but what if it's not? And so there's lots of people pushing to figure out how do we, again, just manage, regulate, and communicate these things a lot better so that uh, we can know what these risks are and say if that is acceptable or not. Okay, so if you get some space junk on your property, <laughs> what do you do? Who do you call? Well, not Ghostbusters, because they won't know what to do. So, and, and this was kind of the, this was one of the issues, is that um, who do you call? Technically, the Australian Space Agency has oversight of, in Australia, of things going up and coming back down. That is their their role, those are their policies. And so they are supposed to handle it. Now, the trick is obviously figuring out where it's from, that it's real, and then putting that picture together. In this case, we were very unique because, again, we knew this part was flying right over area, people are solid, and then the pieces were found. You know, lots of people send me their pictures and, you know, we try and I try and help, and I know lots of other people do as well, but ultimately it's in the realm of the space agency because it's an international obligation. So what the International Space Agency or the, the Australian Space Agency has to do is work with their international counterparts overseas, so in the U.S. it's FAA, to figure out, is this American junk, for instance? Who does this belong to? And then the FAA in the U.S. works on behalf of SpaceX. So 
you have this international level of cooperation, but also obligation. And once that's established, you then have to establish who owns it. And if mm. you can then establish who owns it, that means then you can see if they want it back because ultimately it's their property in the beginning. But also then they may be liable for any damages. So there's also then that kind of two sides of the coin. As soon as a group says that's ours, they're also admitting liability and any cause or damages that may bring. So it's an interesting legal slippery slope and one why you know groups like the Australian Space Agency have to handle it in a very clear, methodic way with the overseas groups that manage it on their end. So could you get in trouble for moving it or touching it or somehow interfering with space junk if it lands on your property? Not to that level um, in the sense that, you know, they understand it, you know, it may be moved, it may be touched. Obviously, you shouldn't be touching or looking at it if you don't know what it is. You don't know what materials may be on it. So that's always the biggest risk there that people warn about is you don't, may not know uh, if it's hazardous or not. Uh, it's not radioactive. A lot of people I often think that space junk comes back radioactive. It's not. Yes, there is radiation in space, but you don't turn immediately radioactive. Otherwise, the capsules and the astronauts coming back would as well. So, you know, that's less of the worry. But there are materials or fuels that may be harmful. Uh, so, you know, you should always exercise caution in that way. But then there's also the, you know, hey, it falls in my garden. I think I know what it is. I'm just not going to tell anyone. Well, yeah, there's a everyone's banking on you reporting it. You don't in some ways have to. And again, if no one knows it landed there, how are they going to find that it landed there? It's this relying on people just to practice honesty in all of these policies. And, and again, this is what uh, Mick Miners and Jock Wallace, the two farmers who found it, did. They were trying to figure out what is it and what do we need to do? That's all they wanted to do uh, as part of this. So the boundary of obligation versus good stewardship is quite interesting in these situations. Hey, Brad, didn't this Dragon spacecraft actually come down in May last year? Why are we only having stuff hitting the ground now? Yeah, so so the capsule itself, as you said, landed in May, but the trunk is the bottom part of the capsule. It's unpressurized, and they kind of use it for equipment. So what happens is before they enter the Earth's atmosphere, the capsule where the astronauts are, they jettison or they leave this bit behind. And they leave it in such a way that they don't do it too early so that if they still need it while they're in space, it's, it's not too early or not too late so that it alters the course of the actual capsule itself. So that means they jettison it or leave it, dump it essentially in space at an early enough time so that it will stay up there for a year. And it mm. just takes that long orbiting the Earth for the Earth to slowly bring it down. So there's a little bit of atmosphere that creates a little bit of drag. So it falls a little bit more and then falls a little bit more and more and more. So, it, yeah, it just unfortunately takes this long. And this is the other problem with space junk is there are bits of space junk up there from the Apollo era. Hmm. There are some bits of space junk that will be up there for hundreds of years because <laughs> it takes that long. This is the other issue that we have with space junk. It's not just the stuff hitting the Earth but all the stuff floating around in space and in the space side, this is the bigger worry is that all this junk in uncontrolled can crash into other things, breaking apart, which creates more things, which breaks apart, which creates more things. And this is the really big worry. We have a space junk is catastrophic collisions that can block essentially our access to space and, and damage other things in space. 
That was Dr. Brad Tucker, who's an astrophysicist from the ANU. And Tom, I just think this is so amazing to learn that it was this incident that led SpaceX to set up a space junk hotline. And you can contact the Australian Space Agency. Uh, Hopefully they pick up the phone next time. Yeah, totally. Uh, Especially with more of this stuff happening, you know, more stuff going up into space means more stuff will come down and we need better systems to deal with it so that no... Brumbies, farmers or skiers are victims of falling debris, although the Brumby numbers are being reduced. So, maybe, oh, look, that's a whole vex issue that I don't think we should get into right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's not overcomplicate things. Okay, so tomorrow on The Briefing, uh, quite a bizarre story from the film world. Why was Batgirl, a film that was completely finished, it had been shown to people in the industry, And then it was thrown in the bin, over $100 million worth of production. We'll find out why they did that. Listener.